only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. The scripture reading today comes from page 949 of the Blue Pew Bible, uh, found in Romans 14, uh, 1 through 12. Please join with me as I read. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, And none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live in the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The reading of the word of the Lord. Let's pray together again. Lord, you reveal yourself to us in your word. You love to show your beauty and glory to us. We pray that we would see something more of your lordship, of your kindness to us, of your redemption, and and how we should regard one another in light of your lordship. Bless us that we will be a church united under Christ. Protect us from the evil one, Lord. We thank you for the peace that we enjoy But we acknowledge, Lord, that it only exists because of your sovereign work in our life. It will only be sustained as you exercise lordship over our hearts that are so prone in and of themselves to evil. But you poured out your spirit into our lives. You said from our innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so we have hope, Lord, that... We can be, by your grace, fountains of love to one another, fountains of acceptance and kindness and grace to one another as your mighty spirit lays hold of our lives more and more and more. 
Bless us to that end as we come to your word. We submit, Lord, even now to your gracious lordship. Amen. We uh, found out recently, we we knew that our son Chase and his wife Melly were expecting a baby. And we found out recently that they had first a girl, Harper, then uh, a son, and then... <laughs> then the third child we find out is going to be a son. Okay. Well, Harper, <clears throat> um, Harper, the oldest, she's the kind of pistol Pete of all the grandkids so far. We've got two coming, so I don't know how she'll rate when all five are here uh, uh, thus far. But she had decided weeks ago, perhaps even two months ago, and was telling everybody confidently and joyfully that she's having a girl, that they're going to have a girl and her name's going to be Tinkerbell. (laughs) So it's going to be a shock when he finds out, you know, that his name is Tinkerbell uh, because we're not telling her any differently. No, it's just, it's amazing what one letter does, you know, hey, tank, a tank or hey, tink. You know, just that little letter, it's a big difference. So I think we won't, I imagine most of you boys here would agree that we shouldn't call him Tinkerbell, right? Uh, it wouldn't be good. Um, the point I'm making is that assumptions can be pretty bad, can't they? You know, For her, relatively innocent, although I think she is, is going to be a bit in shock when she finds out it's not a girl and its name's not Tinkerbell. But This passage deals with uh, assumptions that we have toward one another. Uh, Assumptions, in fact, to create a whole person over here that we don't even want to be around and we suspect their spiritual well-being based on matters that aren't critical. That's what Paul is dealing with here. Matters that as you can see from reading it, especially as he talks about the day, one day one person esteems one day as more important, another doesn't. Let each be convinced in his own mind. Obviously, these are matters of freedom. They're matters of liberty. And yet, you have people in Rome despising or judging one another, assuming all of these things about one another and creating strife and disunity. Uh, within the body, quarreling. Now, first of all, what is the situation that they're likely looking at here? And then we're going to look at Paul's exhortation to them, and then finally the foundation of his exhortation. So the situation we'll see is uh, Jewish sensitivities, converted Jewish sensitivities to certain issues that are are holdover from their Jewish background. Then the exhortation, of course, is very clear. Don't judge and don't despise one another. And the foundation, as we'll see, is the lordship of Jesus Christ. The foundation for his exhortations of how they to regard one another is that Christ is Lord over each individual. And it's interesting in this passage, as much as Scripture talks about how we all are together and we're one, and, and this is the huge emphasis in Scripture, here... There's this dividing out of saying, each one of you has a master. 
And you don't judge another person's uh, another person because he has his master. Now, it's the same master, but that's his master. And he's answering to his master. He's not answering to you. So there's this, this sweet kind of individual emphasis here that uh, helps in this particular uh, issue that they're facing. But first of all, this situation, why do we think uh, that this is the situation of Jewish sensitivity? Some people actually have thought that maybe it has something to do with pagan rituals and background, uh, particularly, as we'll see, because of the idea later in the chapter of not drinking wine, which is verse 21, because wine was not forbidden in Jewish uh, circles. So why, why that? Or uh, meat. Meat's certainly not forbidden in general uh, among the Jews. So why would this be an issue? Well, we'll look at that here in a second. But one clue that it's talking about these matters is the fact that the, he uses the word unclean later in verse 14 and in verse 20. And this is a standard terminology for foods that are regarded as unclean in Jewish circles. So that's a, a real indicator that that's what he's talking about. Also in Colossians, secondly, in Colossians 2.16, uh, he, he mentions in one breath, uh, don't let anyone be your judge as to food or drink or festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. So food and drink, which are dealt with in this passage, and days which are dealt with in this passage. And it's obvious when Paul talks about that there, he specifies new moon, Sabbath, festivals, and food and drink. And so here, when he's dealing with those same issues, food and drink and days, uh, it's likely that he's talking about the same kinds of things. Thirdly, also, in uh, th- this, is a set, this begins a new section. Chapters 12 and 13 are a section We talked about how that began and ended on the idea of the uh, new life and the new age that we're living in, the new age of light. And then chapter 14 through 15, 13 is a a unit, okay, through uh, chapter 15 through verse 13. And you'll notice at the end of this section in chapter 15, beginning with verse uh, 7 and following, he talks about Jews and Gentiles and their relationship again. So that... And, of course, he's talked about Jew and Gentile relationship and how they're to regard one another. He's already talked to the Gentiles earlier about not being uh, prideful or arrogant toward their Jewish brothers. So this, again, just fits with the whole flow of the passage. Also, this was a huge concern in Jewish circles, especially as they are scattered out among the Greeks to maintain separation through these things, through how they eat, how they drink, and the kind of days they keep. Uh, Listen to this uh, concern. And in fact, the way this is stated in this Jewish writing, Sirach, sounds so much like what we have here of rating one day above another. And he, he is asking the question about these days. He says, why is one day more important than another? Now, this is from a Jewish perspective, and they definitely think there's one day more important. Why is one day more important than another when all the daylight in the year is from the sun? In other words, the idea is, what, is there different daylight on this day? Why why is this a more important day, this Sabbath day? But by the Lord's wisdom, they were distinguished, and he appointed the different seasons and festivals. Some days he exalted and hallowed, and some he made ordinary days. We see that sounds so much like this, doesn't it? Some regard a day as more important or separate than others. 
And so that's why as well we feel like uh, this is the, the consensus is that's what they're talking about. Another interesting parallel that you may recall is in Daniel chapter 1 when uh, Daniel and the boys were faced with the uh, food that was being served as they were subjects of the king. And they were in the king's palace and they were being trained. And it says that they only ate vegetables, which is interesting because that's what's being said here. And they abstained from the wine that was served. So they wouldn't eat the meat like this and they wouldn't drink the wine like is uh, hinted at later in the passage. Well, the likelihood is that these things were offered to idols and so they would associate it with idolatry and they would connect it with idolatry and they were wanting to separate themselves from that idolatry in Daniel chapter 1. But it's the same kind of thing uh, that they were dealing with. Uh, and it's, it's odd because meat and drink were required actually not just general living, but at worship itself in the Old Testament. And this, is, this kind of shocks our sensibilities, but some of us at least. But in Deuteronomy 14, 26, uh, he says, Now, you bring the tithe of your food and drink that you want to offer up to God and then use to feast before God. You think, you mean a tithe and I get to eat it? That sounds pretty good, right? That's one, one part of the tithe then was that you, you had, you set it apart so that you could go and have feast before God. He says, well, what if you're traveling a long way and it's hard to bring your ox and your sheep and everything there? He says, well, you can cash them in, okay, sell them, bring your money, and it says literally, then buy whatever you want. Buy cattle, buy sheep, by wine or strong drink. Some translate that as beer. Some translate it as liquor. Some translate it as other alcoholic beverage. But that's what it says for worship. And of course, we don't, it's hard for us to understand that uh, there was no way to preserve the fruit of the harvest unless it was fermented, you know, and that's just the way they lived. They, they had fermented uh, drink of different kinds. So it's odd because of that, because that's just the way that was their culture, that was their life. And it was a way that they celebrated before God in the worship festivals that there would be some concern about wine here. And that's why some have thought maybe it's not about Jewish sensitivities. But uh, the idea is that these things, either meat was offered to idols or it wasn't the blood in it was not dealt with correctly. It wasn't kosher. So sometimes in the in Gentile circles, if, if you're a Jew, you just say, well, I'm just not eating meat then. That'll take care of that problem. I won't have any worry whether it's been offered to an idol or whether it was prepared correctly. And I'm just going to avoid all wine in this situation because it may have been offered to an idol. Okay? So that's the situation. We have to understand how important this was, though, to the Jews up to this point, because this is how they defined themselves, especially in the midst of the Gentiles among whom they had been scattered. It was the way they defined themselves in Palestine, but it became all the more important to define and distinguish themselves from those around them. And it also formed a kind of insulation against the encroachment of these other 
influences. It kind of gave them spiritual breathing space to have these things that separated them out, a kind of protection. It also formed a kind of training for them. Stay away from uh, shrimp and clothes that have the same, uh, have different uh, fibers and and practice these things in terms of food and days, etc., And this will teach you how to be holy. This will teach you to constantly be separate from them morally as well. You see, it's kind of a training. I think of it like when I, if and when, on rare occasions every five years, I exercise, okay? But uh, when, when I do exercise over a period of time, it seems to give me a different discipline in my diet. And I find I have a different discipline in other areas as well. And that's kind of the feel, the the use of these things. It helped them understand separation and holiness uh, in a kind of training, kindergarten way, uh, a tutoring of this for them. So you can understand that being the case, and you become now a Christian, and you've been doing these things for years, and this is the way that you maintain purity, and this is the way that you feel like you are intimate with God, suddenly to give that up just doesn't seem right, you know. just doesn't seem holy. It doesn't seem intimate or pure that you would just suddenly say no to all of these things. And then when you read the scripture and you see the the powerful example of a Daniel who was right like you are in the midst of paganism and he didn't compromise on these issues. Are you going to compromise? You know, you get that feel about it. So that's what's happening uh, apparently in this uh, arena and happened because these issues are dealt with in many books Apparently in Galatia and in Colossae, um, it was even more serious. And it was mixed in with other religious practices and even to the point of saying, you can't even be a Christian unless you do these things. Now, here, he regards all of them as fundamentally trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And so when he talks about weak and strong, he's simply saying, some are not strong enough to believe in the grace of the new covenant and the new change of the covenant in which the food laws and the days are not to be regarded as they were. That there's a new uh, relationship to God through Christ that gives freedom in these areas. This is probably why in Mark seven nineteen there's this little parenthetical phrase after uh, Jesus talks about what goes into the stomach does not make you unclean. It's what comes out of the heart that makes you unclean. And there's a little parenthesis because Mark is written to the Gentiles, thus he made all foods clean. Right? Then you have that passage in Acts 11 where God brings down the big cloth and all these unclean foods are right there and God tells Peter to eat of them. And Peter says, I've never eaten of these things. I would never do that. And he's showing him This way that you used to eat and maintain private fellowship so that you were never eating with Gentiles, that's over. That's over. Don't regard them as unclean. Don't regard this as separated. And don't regard this, all of these things that stand in the way of you and and Gentiles, they're gone. The barriers have been removed. And it's interesting if you'll read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, it talks about Christ removing the barriers and bringing the Jews and Gentiles together as one people. So, I know I've told you more than you wanted to know, but this is a little bit of 
what's going on in this passage. Now, obviously, in that context, uh, he had already prepared in a way for what he's, not in a way, but he's already prepared in the chapter before uh, by saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about that in verse 14, that especially the Lord, you know, give yourself up to the Lord, make him Lord in, in all circumstances. And isn't it interesting right here? He says, and here's the first one where he better be Lord. It's in your dealing with one another on these issues. You must regard him as Lord and put him on as Lord. And interestingly, also in, ver- in chapter 13, verse 13, where he says, don't walk in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And it's a little bit surprising. We think, well, wow, he's got all these, you know, what we think are big time things. And then it's quarreling and jealousy. It's almost as though Paul says, yeah, okay, you're, you're not carousing anymore. You've avoided sexual immorality. What about getting at each other's throat? What about your relationship to one another? Of course, the question comes to mind, what, what's, what's the situation that we might be in? And we'll try to think long and hard about this. And maybe, maybe one, and, and this will probably, this may even step on some toes because some people say, well, I don't think that's a liberty, which is part of the problem maybe. But, uh, but it's, it's schooling your children, okay? There's, there's some, and I've heard it all in the church, not just this church, but I mean, let's just say the church, right? All the way from those people who are homeschooling or Christians uh, are in Christian schools have just cut themselves off from the world and they don't care about anybody and they're not training their children how to deal with all of the things that go on and we just cut our neighbors off. And what are they going to think when they come to our church and nobody's a part of their school, etc.? And people have a strong conviction that we need to be in there and be leaven and we need to be influencing, etc. And, of course, the whole other side is... You've just given your children over to Moloch, you know. You're sacrificing them to the God of, of whatever. So this goes on back and forth. But we've got public schooling, homeschooling, private schooling, and uh, Christian schooling. Or there are some other varieties. And, and this is one of those areas where I think is at least one place where we can kind of ask the question, has God given a word on where my children are to be in school? Or has he given me principles and I must live these out as God leads me, as God uh, teaches me from his word? And then as we go through this, think he or she, he or she, this family, that they answer to their Lord. I answer to my Lord. They are giving themselves up gratefully and thankfully and earnestly to God. And I'm giving myself up to God, even though we part ways in how we're uh, fulfilling this in our practice. So perhaps that's as as good as any an example to think about. But that's the situation. The exhortation, uh, as he says, he begins here of the for the one who's weak in faith. Paul obviously put himself in the strong in faith category. Notice chapter fifteen, verse one: We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. In the last part of chapter 14 and 15, he deals with the strong. But he deals with both in chapter 14, the first part, but maybe a little more with those with the weak who are judging. But the first thing he says is, welcome him 
not to quarrel, but not to quarrel over opinions. You know, it's not like, hey, yeah, yeah, hey, good to see you. You know, I'm going to work you over. Uh, I'm just holding out the hand to get a chance to, to get at it again, to get to argue, to fight over this matter. And, and the idea here is that we uh, don't constantly trying to settle disputes over what are doubtful matters, that we don't have to settle every one of these matters to everybody's agreement. Now, this is totally different than, hey, you think stealing is right, I don't. You know, <laughs> you think adultery is fine, I don't. You think gossip's fine, I don't. We're not into those areas, but we're into areas where the scripture doesn't specify and where there is a liberty of opinion and, and application of God's word. So he's saying to the strong, welcome him. And he lays it out that one person believes this, another believes another. And verse 3, if, if you're the one who eats, you're the one who's free to eat because you realize God makes all things. And if something is sold in the marketplace, maybe it has, maybe it hasn't been offered to an idol, I don't know. I'm just at the restaurant or I'm at the marketplace and I'm going to eat it because God made this food and it belongs to God and I can give thanks to God. That's the idea. Or another who says, no, if it is for me personally, I don't want to do it. And so I'm not going to eat it. So he says, notice The one who eats, don't despise the one who abstains. And then the one who abstains, pass judgment on the one who eats. So this sense of despising is probably that feeling of of disdain, right? Kind of a disgust. Those self-righteous, thinking they're doing good, looking down their nose, tightly wound, hung up, can't enjoy anything, critical, fussy, nose-turned-up people. I don't know. I've just maybe heard a few of those things. but <clears throat> And even there's this sense when he says despise, I don't even want to be around them. They're oppressive. They're killjoys. They're nitpicking. I don't want to even be around them. See that attitude. And he says, no, on the contrary, welcome them. Be intimate with them. Be close to them. Don't feel, make them feel separate from you. And the indication seems to be that the majority are the strong and the minority are the weak. And so uh, he's, he's urging the majority, receive and welcome them and make them a vital part of your fellowship. Notice how he repeats that in verse 1 of chapter 15. Bear with the failings of the weak. And then as he rounds out this section in verse 7 of chapter 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. But then he also says to the one who doesn't eat, not to judge. You know, the idea of, you know, I pray for them. I just don't think they really understand holiness and dedication to God. I just don't think they take it serious. This is a battle. I can't do that and feel like I'm in the presence of God. And I don't know how they can. That tends to be the attitude of those who are stricter, you know. And looking at people who don't have that strictness in a certain area that's It's not a sin, it's just different approach to things. Um, And the tendency is to think they don't care about real obedience. They're really not serious about the Christian life. And if God knew each of their hearts, he might say, well, they're more serious than you are about the Christian life. They just see it differently. Their dedication to me is, is exemplary. But they look at things differently. 
So he, he says here, don't pass judgment because God has welcomed him. Prior to, uh, in opposition to what you think, as you're judging them and putting them in a category of God must reject them and hate what they are and are doing, he says, no, God welcomes them. God accepts them. And even says in verse four, he makes, he, he will make them stand before him. He will make them enjoy this acceptance before him. And then this question, which we'll get to in a minute, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? But the point is, he's able to make them stand. He doesn't stand on his own authority. The Lord makes him stand. The Lord literally places him before himself. And when the Lord does this, as he's going to do in Judgment Day, even where it says in Jude, he will make us, he will present us before him blameless in, with glory and great joy in that final day. That's what he's talking about. He's going to make each one of us stand welcomed and blameless and great joy in that final day, as he says at the end of Jude there. And so Paul then, and this we get into the third thing now, the foundation. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? The idea is that you are a house servant. And he or she is a house servant. And how can you then judge what this house servant is doing? Because he's answerable to his master. It'd be like one servant, one guy working for this uh, man, and he looks over at another servant, uh, happens to pass by his house, and he says, I can't believe how he's cutting and stacking the wood. I can't believe it. We never cut and stack wood that way. That's not the way my daddy did it. It's not the way my granddaddy did it. And I can't believe he's doing that. And you say, it doesn't matter what you think. His master told him to cut and stack it that way. It's none of your business how he cuts and stacks his wood. Because he has a master and he's working for him and he's doing it like he told him to. Why is it your concern? You're not his master. Bug out. Stay away. That's kind of the feel of this. Is that each of us stands or falls before our own master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he can say in verse 6 this idea about the days. Verses 5 and 6. People regard at that point would regard, you know, I am going to keep the festivals. I am going to keep the new moon. I am going to keep the Sabbath. Others say, no, I regard them all as the same. I don't regard the uh, the Old Testament Sabbath anymore. <clears throat> and so he says, notice in verse 5, here's the, here's the point, not which one you do, but be fully convinced in your own mind. You get that feel at the end of the chapter. Uh, if you doubt, you're condemned because your eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So believe and trust and give yourself up to God in the conviction that you have. He says, just be convinced and do it. And then don't care if you're not among those who do or don't. It's what you are convinced of in your own mind that is important. And, of course, this calls upon each of us, doesn't it, to be asking that great question uh, of why am I doing this and for whom am I doing this? Notice he goes on in verse 6 talking about eating. He says one eats, but notice why is he doing it or why is he observing the day? It's in honor of the Lord. 
He's giving thanks to God. The one who abstains, he's doing it to honor the Lord and he gives thanks to God. Same worship, same fellowship, same honor, same gratitude, but they're operating in two different areas. And they're, they're approaching this, this subject from different standpoints. But both are equally honoring to God. Both are legitimate. It's legitimate gratitude because of their conviction of what they, they feel like is the right thing to do. That's pretty hard to do. It's really hard to do to be right beside somebody and they're doing something different than you. And it's not moral or immoral, but it's something different. And for you to have your conviction about what you're doing that this is what God has called me to be and be and to do. And then to let the other person be and do as their Lord has called them. And he continues then, you might say in this passage, the idea of lordship just engulfs the issue of, the, of days and, and food. It just swamps it, you know, it just overtakes it so that all you're thinking about really in the end is the lordship of Jesus even to the point of the Lordship exercised in Judgment Day. He's just inundating us with this. Lordship, Lordship, Lordship. This trumps this attitude toward one another as you recognize the extent, the beauty, the glory, the importance of this Lordship. So he says in verse 7, the reason why all this is true, the reason why if you abstain or don't abstain, you're doing it to honor the Lord is verse 7 because... None of us lives to himself or dies to himself. Now, some have wanted this to mean uh, that we belong to each other, but that's not what he's talking about. No man is an island, you know, kind of idea. But it's specifically in relationship to Christ. And in other words, none of us is about satisfying, and I know this is speaking in the ideal but this is how he describes us as believers. He says, this is, this is the way it is with us. This is how we roll. This is who we are. This is how we see it. This is why we do it. This is what we're all about. We don't live to ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. If we live, we're living to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. And then he extends it. It's because we belong to him. We're owned by him. Everything we do is His. And by saying life and death, uh, if whether we live or die, He's dividing all of life into these two basic important areas as, as to say every single part of our life has to do with this. And this last phrase where He says, "For to this end Christ died and lived again that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. This isn't Christ you know, saying, you know, I want to have some subjects. You know, I'm going to become, I'm going to live and die so that I can have some people to rule. You know, as though one of us would want that kind of importance and want to have power in this way, a kind of power play in this way. Um, No, his is a redemptive lordship. He underwent death and resurrection so that he could rescue us from the powers that bound us. So that we would be set free from the destructive sin that was plunging us into judgment. And so that he could give to us the kingdom so that we could enter into the new heavens and the new earth and reign with him forever. That's what his lordship means. 
To this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of the dead and the living. And probably the reason he says dead and the living instead of living and dead, which is all other places, is to fall in line with where he says he died and lived so that he's the Lord of the dead and the living. And maybe this illustration will help to give a little bit of a picture, although a lot of differences here. But Oscar Schindler, as you know, you may have seen the movie Schindler's List, he was a man at the time, though he was impoverished uh, pretty much after the war, he was a man of uh, considerable wealth during the war, and he exercised that wealth and power and influence and ability to weasel things even, ability to manipulate the system at times to save something like eleven to 1,200 Jewish people who most certainly would have been put to death. At one point in October 1944, they were going to close the factory where he had all of them working. And because he caught wind of it and worked frantically and, and successfully to get them moved to a new factory, all of those people weren't ta- taken to the gas chambers and killed, which they were slated for. So he saved them. But notice, I, I would call that, though it's, I know it's very different, but that's kind of a lordship that he exercised. You know, a lordship of power and influence and, and wealth that secured their salvation so that they were all, so many years later, as it shows at the end of the movie, putting a stone on his grave because they're alive, because he had saved them. You know, that's redemptive lordship. That's what Christ did. He died and became alive so that he could exercise this lordship, so that he could bring us out of darkness into light, so that he could secure forgiveness and acceptance in the presence of God and transform us more and more into his image and then live with him forever and ever. And the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5 is he he died so that He died and lived so that those uh, who live for themselves would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And that has the notion of his death and resurrection itself as it's on display causes me to want to leave living for myself, to abandon that life, to live for this Lord. So his lordship is calculated, his lordship so uh, forces itself upon us by grace and mercy that we're convinced uh, in amazement and admiration and love to submit to his lordship, to say, I confess you as Lord. So it, I would call it the power and attraction of Christ, not coercion. It's the power, you might call it the coercion of beauty and majesty. That's what it is. The coercion of beauty and majesty of Christ that just convinces us, don't live for yourself, Darwin, anymore. Live for this Lord. Live for this Lord. And that's what he lived and died for, so that he would be Lord. The safest, most glorious place for us is to be under his benevolent lordship, his beneficial lordship. And part of what you and I must do is believe in that beneficial, gracious lordship. And submit ourselves continually and increasingly to that lordship. He goes on to talk about this lordship and how 
It's interesting, right after saying that, to this end he died that he might be Lord of, of the dead and the living. And almost like, so why do you do this? You know, He's Lord. He should take up everything. And you should think, look, they're answering to their Lord. I'm answering to my Lord. The Lord is in control of this thing. Why then are you despising? And you, it, it, it gives a picture of his pointing to one and then pointing to the other. And you, why are you judging? You, why are you despising? Do you think we're going to be standing in the judgment day and looking at each other and saying, uh-huh, yeah, what are you going to do now? You know, <laughs> what? No, we have, each of us must simply be concerned that I serve my Lord and I will stand before him in judgment day. And that governs our relationship to one another. So that it's one of grace and kindness. So that we uh, accept one another and welcome one another with the mercy that has been shown us. That's why he says at the end of this passage in chapter 15, verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. He has welcomed me as Lord. He has graciously forgiven me. I stand by grace. How can I then keep looking and trying to pick apart my brother and sister as though I'm the perfect thing and I don't stand by mercy? Just a final word on lordship. This really must be your basic, real confession that Jesus is Lord. But it won't be a perfect confession. And this is difficult, you know, because we think, gosh, I disobeyed or I had this thought or I failed in this area. I must not have Jesus as Lord. Well, if you perfectly had him as Lord, you'd be perfect. All right? You never sin in anything, not thought, word, or deed, because you're perfectly submitted to His Lordship. So there must be a fundamental submission to say, Lord, with all that I am and all of my weakness and failings, and by Your sovereign grace and Your Holy Spirit, I give myself up to Your Lordship, realizing that now I must progress and progress and progress in learning more and more to give myself up to this Lordship. And if you've never done this, if you've never given yourself to Christ, hear your choices from what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5. Yourself or Jesus. Fundamentally, that you're going to follow your own heart, your own desires, your own will, or that of the one who died for sinners. If we give ourselves to our own will, then I become my God, I am my own idol, and I push the true God out and say, bug off, you have no place in my life. It's stark, isn't it? Is he the Lord or have I made self my idol? Only by God's grace and power can we see this beauty and majesty of Christ and embrace him and say, you are my Lord. May he bring that about in each of our lives. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would renew us, give us your grace to confess you as Lord over all, and especially that you are Lord of our lives. You deserve it, Lord. You have died for us. You have demonstrated your love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Lord, turn our hard hearts, 
turn our unbelief, cause us gladly, willingly to give ourselves up to this gracious Lord. And in so doing, graciously treat one another as fellow servants of this great master. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away